Lord, thank you so much for that. Amen. And you may be seated this evening. Uh, we're continuing on. Uh, this past Wednesday, we started taking a look at uh, the gospel, which seems uh, a simple thing. Yet we started looking at how it affects my life, how it's supposed to continue to affect my life. And we're going to continue that uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to be talking about how my view affects my vision. My view specifically of the gospel affects my vision. And uh, just to quickly recap, I'm not going to spend a lot of time recapping, but last week, taking a look at what the gospel does in our life. We know that it's a salvation thing, but it's, it's more than that. It saves us, but its real purpose is to put us back into relationship with God. That's, that's the reason. When Satan approached Eve in the garden, he attacked the relationship that Eve had with God, and she began to doubt who God was. Can I trust God that he's not withholding? Instead of seeing him as someone who was generous and benevolent and good and righteous, suddenly the enemy starts to convince her that God is assertive and restrictive and a withholding God who doesn't want his position compromised. If you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. Well, God doesn't want you to be like him, so he said, don't eat of it. He's a nervous God that you might be as good as him. And since that moment, I know your spouse is, but since that moment, God has been striving to re-enter into relationship with every single person. He's been striving to get back in relationship throughout history till this moment and with you. And everything that God has done, everything that we read about in Scripture, all of it is about God reaching for you and I again. I'm thankful that God keeps reaching for you and I. That history throughout the ages, throughout everything in my own life, that God continues to reach for me. Every dispensation in Scripture, everything including the law, had this at its core, that it was reaching for a relationship. But Satan's good at his job. And, and not to give him too much credit, but he's convinced many throughout history, even today, of this one thing, to do this one thing, harden their hearts towards God. That's what we ended last week, was talking about how the enemy wants your heart to get hard towards God. He doesn't care how it gets hard. He just wants your heart hard towards God. Heart hard. He doesn't want you to open up in a relationship with God. And see, that's what a new birth experience does. That's what the gospel is about. It opens us up truly to God and puts us in right relationship with Him. Yes, it saves us from the punishment of sin, from the condemnation the law demands, but it also restores that lost connection with God. And so understanding how I view the gospel uh, is important to under understand what it has done for me in my life. That yes, it has saved me from the punishment and from sin, but it has put me in relationship with God. Because my view affects my vision. My view affects my vision. That view, how I view the gospel, how I see the gospel, if I see it as restoring my relationship, uh, that's important because how I view that gospel affects my vision, how I see the world, how I see other people. Um, how many of you wear glasses? I can't really see. It affects our vision, the lenses, it affects our vision. And, and, and how we view the gospel, whether it's about uh, saving me from sin, whether it's saving me to God, whether it's about a relationship, affects how I view everybody else, affects how I view circumstances, and it affects how I view God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is where we started last week. We read these again. 
Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so we talked last week about this revelation from faith to faith, that there is this progressive revelation that as I understand more about the gospel, as I let it affect me more, that more is revealed to me, that it's not this one-time event only. Now, we do find that faith is important in the initial experience we have of salvation. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because I think that most of us believe that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. That the gospel is powerful, but it's only as powerful as your faith. That God can save everyone, but the reason He hasn't is because their faith hasn't been mixed with it. Okay, so there's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, it's not a whole lot of ingredients. It's like a Kool-Aid packet, really. <laughs> there's some powder and some water. That's it. That's what you, you can live off that in college. It's got good nutritional benefits. It's got sugar. Yeah, something. <laughs> but it has to be mixed. That's why when Jesus died, we weren't all saved. Because it had to be mixed with faith. So there's this key aspect. It's almost like our faith activates the gospel. When our faith is mixed in, it, the, the, the gospel is activated. The great thing is, though, is that it doesn't require much faith. That's the power of the gospel. Is that It does require my faith, and it comes only through faith, but it doesn't require much faith. In fact, no qualifications are given on how much faith I need or even the quality of my faith. Now that's important because I don't know how you came to God, but I came to God in a pretty bad way. In fact, when we come to God, we don't really have much faith. In fact, sometimes our faith may not even be that good of a faith. Scripture tells us, and again, not spending too much time, but uh, we find that Jesus says it only takes a mustard seed of faith. That amount of faith, that the gospel only takes a little tiny bit of action. It only takes a little bit of me believing that God is and that He's a rewarder and that He can forgive me. And I don't have to know how or why or all the other things figured out. I just need a little bit of faith. And the reason it only takes the smallest amounts of faith is because with the gospel is this other massive topic that we can get into, but we won't, is the aspect of God's grace. It's because of God's grace that I don't need a whole lot of faith. I don't need great faith. I don't need, uh, I, don't, I just need something to come to God. And all it takes is a little bit of inclination towards God. All it takes is me to clap my hands or enter into His house in faith. And I start to feel His presence. I start to feel something happen when I come together and put a little bit of faith in there. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, this is a great scripture because it talks about the ungodly. Again, the quality of my faith. That when I came to God, even now my faith did not deserve or warrant salvation to come into my life. 
My faith was not that great that God said, wow, look at that faith. I should give him salvation. No, that's not how I came to God. My faith did not warrant God forgiving me. It didn't, it didn't constitute enough to remit my sins and then him coming inside of me and filling me with the Holy Ghost. All of that was the work of grace. That's what grace did. When I came to God, grace saw me. God saw me through grace in that little bit that I had. And all that grace needed to be activated was just that inkling of my sinner faith. That verse says, justifieth the ungodly. The ungodly faith that I had was enough. Because the sacrifice of Jesus, grace, is always in excess of sin. So however much sin there is, there's always more grace. And if there's a sinner coming to God, that means there's a whole lot of grace there that God sees that person not through all the sin, but through all the grace. And if that person is willing just to turn to God a little, that's enough for God to work with. All I need to do is have that little bit of faith, that ungodly faith, to activate that grace. When I experience a new birth, God begins to work on me then from the inside out. From the inside out. Now, I hope you understand that when you receive the Holy Ghost, you get the Holy Ghost before you speak in tongues. <laughs> Scripture says it's like a river that comes out of you. That's the sign of what's in you. So it's in you first and it comes out. Okay, that's the evidence of what's in you. And that's how it continues on in my walk with God. Is it's in me, but it has to come out. Love is in me, it has to come out. Joy is in me, it has to come out. God works from the inside out. So that means when I receive the Holy Ghost, it starts to affect my attitudes and my thoughts, which work out in my actions. That's how it's supposed to work. And I begin to respond because of the goodness, the grace, and mercy that God has shown me. I respond in gratitude, which leads me to want to follow what He says. So it's this inside-out relationship. This inside-out which draws me even closer in relationship. And so we have this aspect of faith and grace working with the gospel. And this is important to see as we go ahead. That there was nothing. All you provided was a... a, a a slight turn towards God and God swooped into your life. That's it. That's all you did. We know we weren't good enough, smart enough. <laughs> you, know, you know, none of that, that mattered. There was not enough works I could do. There weren't enough old ladies I could help across the road. That God said, man, he needs the Holy Ghost. Now, he was saying that, but not because of what I was doing. <laughs> all right. Now, let's, let's jump over just here for a moment. In the Protestant Reformation, we're going all the way back to the Reformation, it's, it's marked by Martin Luther. He nailed the 95 Theses to the door of his church in 1517. That's a while ago. So while it's difficult to say of any movement, this is the moment that it all began, this was definitely a major turning point in religion. As people began to realize that the prevalent religious organization of the day, the Catholic Church, was not really operating according to Scripture. Now, the first thing that was really beneficial is the Word of God was not really that much published, and it was written in Latin for the most part. And so that'd be like me getting up here and saying, you can't read this or have it, but let me tell you what it says. That would work out real good for me. 
Because they'd say, uh, I mean, it, it comes to where people are, are saying, if, are, are, they're being told, if you pay a certain amount, your sins will be forgiven. If you buy this icon, if you buy this relic, if you say these certain things, then your sins will be forgiven. Or, and that's not really biblical. But everything was controlled and distorted by the church, which is a shame. And so the reformers held this phrase that we read, and actually in Romans, the verse that we read, the just shall live by faith. This was a, a, a transformative thing in religion, and this became the rallying cry that it's not about what you pay, it's not about what you say, it's not about what you do. The just shall live by faith. That is by faith alone, it's by the grace of God that we're saved. You can't pay enough to be saved. You can't say enough things to be saved. You can't say the Apostles' Creed enough to be saved. It's only by the grace and, and mercy of God. And so this was, this was amazing. We don't even realize that what we believe today was not believed just a few hundred years ago. But they put forward this correct idea that there's nothing you, can, you and I can do to purchase or achieve salvation. It's only divine work. And, but since the Reformation, there's generally been considered to be two schools of thought that are incorrect views of the gospel. And sometimes we start falling in these, and how we view salvation is important because it affects how we view the world and everyone else. And we have the danger of slipping into these things sometimes. And these two incorrect views that we begin to see the gospel and then ultimately the world, they're, they're, these two things, are, these are words, maybe you've heard of one, the other one probably not so much. The first one is legalism. The second one is antinomianism, which just simply means grace is enough, it covers it all. God saved me, if you might want to say in the modern vernacular, once saved, always saved. That His grace just covers everything, I can do what I want. These are the two schools of thought, and they're prevalent even in our attitudes today. Because let me tell you, Satan is trying to deceive you. I don't know if you realize that. And here's the crazy thing about deception is you don't know you're deceived. <laughs> I'm not telling you that you're deceived. I'm just saying that when you're deceived, you don't know. People don't walk around saying, yep, I know they're lying to me. And I'm still going to do it most of the time. Some people do. <laughs> you don't know you're deceived. And Satan is a master of deception. Now, in, in, in your eye, now you can't look in your eye, look in your neighbor's eye, but in your eye, in the makeup of your eye, there's a lens. And there's this process called accommodation. And it is the process by where your eye changes the optical power to maintain a clear image or focus on an object as its distance varies. Okay? So that simply means that accommodation happens. It, it changes when the lens adjusts or changes in size to maintain a clear picture. Okay? So distance, your lens changes to get a clear picture as close up. It changes to get a clear picture. That's called accommodation. Okay? And, and, and when you can't, your eye can't adjust, you have to get corrective lenses. Okay? My eye is not accommodating right now. Depending on who I'm looking at, it might be very accommodating. No. Sorry. In the name of Jesus. I can't look at you. All I see is a blur. That's it. But without, so in the same way though, the lens of the gospel, when it's incorrectly adjusted, when it can't adjust, we, get a, we don't get a clear picture. We don't get a clear picture. And without a clear picture, with a distorted lens, 
How many of you, I don't know uh, if, if you were a kid, how many ever picked up a pair of glasses and put them on? I remember uh, we had a pair of my uncle's glasses at our house, and they were old glasses, and I would put them on, and it was weird because you'd be walking, and it was like there's this big dip in the ground right in front of you, and you're like, ooh, it's kind of freaky looking, okay? You, you're in danger, though, if I was going to take the stairs in those glasses, that, that could actually be a trip, an actual trip. Because when you can't see correctly, you're in danger of tripping and falling continuously. When you have an incorrect focus, you don't see clearly, and actually you start to become a danger to yourself. If I drive without my glasses, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) So it's important for us as well. That we see clearly, that we see correctly. Now, we're going to give a, a few definitions here when we look at legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is more than simply believing that works save me. It's more than that. It's more than thinking that I can be good enough for God. It's more than that. It goes to the heart. It goes to the character. It goes to the motivations of why I do things. It's the thought that God's love is conditional upon something I can do or be. It's the thought that that, that it's the attitude that there are things I can do which will extend God's goodwill towards me. That if I do this, God will be obligated to do this. That's legalism. And we'll look at it again here in just a minute. Antinomianism. That grace, it's just grace and that's all there is and I don't have to... It states that since God loves me in spite of my record, which is true, it doesn't matter about my past. And I do know in the future that if I sin, I can find a place of repentance. But it takes it to the extreme where that because my record is covered by grace, then I can really do what I want. Believing that God created me in a particular way with particular emotions and feelings and thoughts that I should be able to then act out in the way that I am created to. Now, in its extremes, this goes to people that serve God and just live in sin. And they're covered by grace. It states the law is over, so now I can do what I want regardless of the law. Now, that's the extremes. But sometimes we, start, we can even get into this thing where we start to say, well, is that really necessary? Is it really necessary? These seem like foreign ideas sometimes, but when we look at the symptoms, because nobody's, this is a great thing, nobody ever calls themselves this. They're always called this by someone else. No one ever usually willingly raises their hand and says, yes, I'm a legalist. But these, these seem like foreign ideas to us, but when we look at the symptoms of both, we start to get a clearer picture of how they really may be affecting my life. Symptoms of antinomianism is a disregard for the commands of Scripture, fulfilling natural desires, believing that I can indulge in my desires, and then taking the blessings of God as approval of what I'm doing. Begin to view the gospel as a way of escape for our own desires. First John says, and he writes to the church, that's the great thing about most of Scripture, it's written to the church, so it's not written to filthy sinners, it's written to you and I. In First John, he tells them about the pride of life, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh. And he warns them because these things start to creep in. 
Now, we understand that while it may not be out and out, flat out sin, but the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life affect us all. And we begin to think, well, maybe that's not quite as bad as what I thought. Begin to let go of certain things, feel that we don't have to do certain things or do everything. Is that really necessary? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, though, it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For when whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? You see, what we have to understand is that God's love is demonstrated through boundaries and through restrictions. It is. That love without boundaries, love without restrictions is not really love. Just as he likens it to the analogy of a father and a son. That I can't just let my sons do whatever they want and call it love. Because well they like me because I let them do whatever they want. No that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's the other argument, because we've just we read the verse earlier, it's the chapter before, where sin abounds, grace doth that more, much more abound. Well, if you want more grace, then get more sin. He says, What should we do then? Sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That there's certain things that we die to and that we stay dead to. And we understand that just because there's grace to cover my sin doesn't give me the liberty to sin willingly. I can't abuse the grace of God. And for the most part, I would say that most of us, what we would call fundamentalist Christianity would be the broad term. We just call it believe in the Bible. <laughs> Most of us would probably, because we do keep the Word of God, we do look to the Word of God, most people would not accuse us of this here. But they would start accusing us of something else. Legalism. You know what? When I started reading the symptoms of legalism, man, ungenerous, harsh, overly sensitive to criticism. That one made me mad. <laughs> Deeply insecure. Deeply insecure. I start thinking about all the people that start saying, man, I don't know if God could use me. Man, I start talking about insecurity. That's a symptom of legalism. Jealous of others. You see, here's the deal with legalism is suddenly my identity and worth have become tied in with performance and its recognition. Now, see, when we're trying to keep, and, and, and we've got one more part of this, so just, we're not going to cover it all tonight. But when your identity and your worth become tied in with your performance, I don't start thinking of that as legalism. I started thinking of that a little bit differently. That starts hitting a little bit more close to home that my insecurities might be because I'm allowing legalism to come into my life. Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, there's a lot of righteousness in there. But he talks about if you are trying to establish your own righteousness, you cannot establish your own righteousness and be submitted to the righteousness of God. You can't do that. Now, of course, we see the extreme of of antinomianism of just live however you want and there's people off doing whatever they want. And we see the extreme of legalism. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a publican that go in to pray together. And the Pharisee says, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And we're like, well, that's legalism. I'm not like that. I don't look down on people and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them and I'm righteous and because I do this. But they're just establishing their own righteousness. They're establishing their own practices. They're zealous. They're passionate for God. But they're doing it through their own works or righteousness. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is important because at the very start we covered that I received salvation not through anything I did. If I don't get that, I can't get anything else. That I did not get salvation because of anything that I was or anything that I did. In fact, Titus tells us, or Paul tells Titus, it's according to his mercy that he saved us. It had nothing to do with what you brought to the table because you had nothing that was good enough for God. Understand though, he talks about the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When I get the Holy Ghost for the first time, that is not a renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is not a regeneration. These are things that happen after I'm saved. So understand this. I am saved by His mercy and grace. And the only reason I stay saved is because of His mercy and His grace. That's the only reason I'm still here today is His mercy and His grace. In fact, the psalmist says that His mercy and grace are new every morning. That's why I'm here. So what about me going to church? What about all my prayers? Am I here because of my Bible reading? Scripture tells me the only reason I'm here is because of His mercy and grace. Do you know there's people that read their Bible and they're not here? Now see, we get that, but we don't like to say that I'm here and it has nothing to do with that. But I'm saved. There's nothing I could do. And Paul tells Titus, there's nothing you can do to keep yourself saved. You're only saved by his mercy and grace. That's it. You can't get yourself saved and you can't keep yourself saved without God. That's just willpower. And you know what we read in Romans chapter 10? That's establishing your own righteousness. I think I can pray enough, read my Bible enough, go to enough church services, read enough books to keep myself saved. You are doing your own works of righteousness. And if you are doing your own works of righteousness, you can't be submitted to his righteousness. Okay? Now, we got one more part. So just think, well, what do we do? Just go do whatever? No, that's antinomianism. That's the other end. See, we think there's two options. (laughs) There's more than two options. (laughs) Never mind. My brain, it's time to go. We got elections. I can't talk about two options. There's more than two options. (laughs) See, we go to two extremes. But we're citizens of another country. 
the third choice. Okay? Now, hashtag is third party time. Okay, really? <laughs> really the best example. So let's, let's, let's bring this to an example for us. Of these two attitudes, goes all the way back to a parable that Jesus told. And I've, I've talked about this parable a lot. We're going to look at it again because it gives us a visual picture. It's a story about two brothers and their dad. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son, and here he comes. The parable of the prodigal son. The son who asked for the inheritance very quickly, there's two sons. One of them asked for the inheritance from his father before he dies, and surprisingly, the father gives it to him. He goes away. He blows the whole inheritance. Eventually, he's got nothing left. He comes to his senses. He comes back to his father, says, I just want to be a servant in your house. And his father gives him the best of everything, throws a party. The elder son hears about it when he's coming home from the fields, gets upset that there's a party going on for his brother who wasted all the money. And really, there's no satisfactory conclusion to the story. It's an unfinished story. But really, what we have here is the, first, the younger son represents spending all that the father has. Using and abusing God's grace. Really, it's a person controlled by his own desires. And thinks, you know what? God's blessings will cover everything that I'm going to do. The elder son, though, represents the legalist. And never forget that he is telling this story not to backsliders... He's telling this whole parable to a group of Pharisees who have gathered. And the point of the story is the elder brother. Because he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees. That's who Jesus is. That's really the focus of the story. One son confronted the father because he felt he was being restricted. Give me my money now so I can do what I want. The other son is confront, confronts the father telling the father all he had done. One says, you're restricting me by not giving me. The other one says the same thing too, though. You've restricted me by not giving me. Which son is right in the story? Which son is right? Now, this goes to personality because you know what? I'm, I, just to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little more cut and dried. I, I sigh a little bit more with that elder son. Of course, I'm the eldest son, and I grew up in the house with three youngest. My mom was the youngest. My dad was the youngest. My sister was the youngest. So, man... They're throwing parties all the time without me. <laughs> Go out there and waste all that money and do all that and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to come back and he's going to want his inheritance all over again. Yeah, I, I feel for the elder son. I've been out here working in the field all day. Well, which son is right? The one who feels his father is restrictive or the one who feels like his father owes him something? Are your works right? Are your faith right? Now, let me tell you, if you read Scripture and you think either one is right alone, then you've misread Scripture. It's faith and works. And that's what they missed. Okay? Both sons, though, here's the issue. Here is the real issue. Because one is, I can do whatever I want, and the other one is bound by rules and restrictions. I have to do this to be saved. I don't have to do anything to be saved and stay saved. That's really where we're at. But here's the thing, is when you look at the core of both of these, these seem like polar opposites. These seem like Republican and Democrat, like there's no common ground whatsoever. There could be nothing that, that connects these two. However, if you look at it, 
Both of them, one person called it, they, they, they are, are, are really just twins. Now they don't look alike, but they're twins. They have the same birthplace. And really here is at the core, because this all comes to the gospel, this all comes back to the Garden of Eden, is that really both sons have the same incorrect view of their father. They have a misguided view of their father. It's not that one's out there spending everything and one is here doing what he's supposed to do. No, they both have an incorrect view of the father. And it's this fact which makes these two opposites have the same issue at their core. Because they are the same core issue. Now understand this. When the issue is the same, those are just symptoms, not issues. It's not that you, can, you think you can do whatever you want and some things aren't necessary and I don't believe that and you don't have to do this. Or, man, you got to do this and you gotta, you got to tie your shoes a certain way and you got to wear long sleeves and you got to have... If it, your hair's touching your ears, guys, then you're going to hell in a handbasket. No, it's the same core issue. Here's the issue. The issue of... See, this is why it's important that I know what the gospel did. It's an issue of do you know the Father? See, the gospel is about salvation, but it's about restoring a relationship. Neither one of those sons had a healthy relationship with their father. That was the issue. And, and you can't cure the one with the other because they're from the same disease. You can't tell a person, well, they just need some more, they just need some more law and regulation and you just need to lighten up. No, what it is is you need a correct view of the gospel because you have an incorrect view of the gospel and it's jading and, and letting you see something that is not real and not true. <laughs> Neither one's going to cure. Both sons, one represents the law, one represents, if we want to call easy grace, had at the core a relationship issue with the Father. You see, the gospel is about salvation. It is about re releasing you from the bondage of slavery. Yes, that is absolutely true. But it is about the restoration of a relationship with God. Remember when Satan attacked Eve, he attacked the relationship with God. You see, legalism has this idea that we have to pry blessings out of God's unwilling fingers through our performance and observances. Now, I understand. Scripture says some things only come by prayer and fasting. I understand these things. And we're going to talk about some of this stuff. Not tonight. Don't worry. But, but you know what? God does not... Well, if you read the whole Bible through tonight when you get home, does not mean that, you, that God has to answer your prayer request. And somehow we think if I, go to, if I do enough, then God will respond to me. Let me tell you, you don't fast so that God will answer your prayer. You're not petitioning and sieging God, holding, your, well, I'm going on strike, I'm not eating. Now that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. I don't pray so I get things from God. And if I pray long enough, I get stuff from God. It's about a relationship. You see how it starts to change what I view? Now, I know that gets a little bit scary because we're thinking, man, well, you're saying you don't have to. No, no. You're trying to cure one with the other. It's an issue of how I view the gospel. It's about putting me back in relationship. I pray because I'm in relationship with God. I read scripture because I'm in relationship with God. I go to church not so they know I was there and check me off on attendance. I go to meet with God because I'm in relationship with God. I don't witness because I'm just supposed to. I do it because of, well, see it goes to all these other things as well. 
If I pray hard enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I go to church enough, then maybe God will do what I want. That's legalism. Because it's based on what I'm doing. <laughs> the, the antinomian sees the same hard, ungenerous God, though, and think, he wants me, I'm not going to do all that stuff. The Father's too restrictive. The laws are too restrictive. I want my inheritance now. You see, they don't see the law as an expression of love, but as a burden. Either one rejoices in the burden. Some people like, like restrictions. Others cast it off. But let me tell you, both the elder and younger son, they failed in that they did not comprehend this fact. The joy of obedience found within a relationship. They did not understand that fact. Both, here's the issue, both didn't really believe the father loved them fairly when it came down to it. You see, here's the danger of legalism, is that suddenly when God doesn't do what I want him to do, I start saying, but look at all I've done, God. <laughs> I deserve. I've been, look, I've been faithful. I've given my tithes. I gave extra. I did, I did, I did. It's not based on that. It's not based on your righteousness. Because if it's all about your righteousness, you're not submitted to His righteousness. You see, they both saw obedience as a way to get things from God, not a way to get God. The only way to pull someone from legalism, the only way to pull someone from antinomianism, it's just I can do whatever I want, is simply to get a clearer vision of the gospel and what He did, which was put me in relationship. And I close. Matthew chapter 7. Ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? You see, all of a sudden in the Garden of Eden, Eve was convinced that God was no longer good. He was not looking out for her best interests. He was restrictive. He was ungenerous. The younger son sees the father as restrictive. The older son doesn't realize that he could have asked the whole time and had a party whenever he wanted. Didn't realize what they possessed. Didn't realize who the father was. And the issue is, is when we see, we have to see God as good. <laughs> because when I think I can do whatever I want, I'm not seeing God as good. Because it's all about me. When I do whatever, I, when I'm over on this side and trying to get God's goodness, it's still really about me. It's not about God and His goodness. You see, because when I fail to see, I've got to see him as a good father that gives to me willingly, that offers to me willingly. You know what? My, my, if you've got kids, they're going to do some dumb, dumb, dumb stuff. And you're going to get so ticked off. And then they might come and say, oh, by the way, I need 40 bucks for convention today at church. You know what you do? <laughs> Tough luck? No. <laughs> you know what? That's how sometimes we view God. It's exactly. We know what we've done. 
And our value and worth is tied to what we just did. And now we need 40 bucks for convention. And we're afraid to ask God because of what we've done. That's the power of His grace and His mercy. That it doesn't depend on the positive that you've done. Neither does it depend on the negative that you've done. He is your Father. It doesn't... It doesn't matter if you are saved or not. Scripture says we are His children. Now, does that mean we're all going to the same place? That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. But He died for all of us while we were sinners, and we are all His children, and He knows how to give good gifts to His children if we ask. And it has nothing to do with what you've done or not done. I can still come before Him and ask because He is a good God. That's what it's about. Last verse, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance of long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now let me tell you the danger, the danger of not viewing God how you should through the gospel, his goodness, that it came to you freely. It's only by his grace and mercy. And the only reason you're still saved is not because of what you've done, but because of his grace and mercy, because he is a good God. Let me tell you the danger. The danger is, is when you see God through the lens of it's what I do, or you see God through the lens, it doesn't matter what I do. All of a sudden, he's no longer good like the father in the story of the parable. Neither of the sons like him at some point because they don't view him as good. When I don't see God as good, I'm going to struggle to find a place of repentance. Because you know what leads me to repentance? Is the goodness of God. <laughs> Scripture says, I'm, Paul says, I die daily. I know that I'm going to mess up. But if it, knowing that, all of a sudden, if I don't know his goodness, I can't find repentance. Now, let me tell you this. Oh, man. We're about done, and I can run out of here. This is why. This is why. Sometimes we think, man, if we just preach more hellfire and brimstone, people will be saved. You know what this verse says? It's not hellfire that leads people to repentance. It's the goodness of God. Now, let me tell you, Jude says near the end, he says, you know what? If you've got to do anything you've got to do, if it's got to be you've got to scare them into heaven, then do it. But that's a last resort. He says, because it's the goodness of God that will lead people to repentance. When you start talking about what God has done for you, how he's changed your life, not that you wake up every day worried that I don't sin and I don't do this and I don't mess up. Why? It has nothing to do with that. It's only his goodness and his mercy and his grace that are going to keep you saved. And so... When I get up, I want people to see the hope in me. That's why they're going to ask. I want to see the hope. And that only comes when I see Him as a good God. And I profess Him as a good God. And the gospel has put me in a relationship so I know that He is a good God. The elder, trouble, the elder son had trouble repenting. We don't know if he ever did. The legalist, we don't know if he ever repented. Because it never tells us he made it into the party. And the party is heaven. In that analogy. Because... Eventually, not seeing the goodness of God led him to seeing his brother as wrong. Let me tell you what, there's going to be brothers I don't agree with. But they make it to the 
party. But you know what, the elder brother, before long, I'm going to end up like that Pharisee. Look at what all I've done, Father. I deserve this. Thankful that I'm not like that. You see, it all comes down to knowing God. If I don't know God, if I don't take what he's given me, the gospel, as a relationship and use that to have, be revealed from faith to faith and start learning who God is and knowing who God is, I'm going to start falling to these incorrect views of the gospel and lose the knowledge of God because I can't know he's God with good without knowing him. I can't know his goodness. I can't know his mercy and his grace without knowing him because that's who he is. As we stand this evening... You see, the danger of both, the danger of both, I start seeing those attitudes of insecurity. I don't think I'm good enough. Nobody is. But it's not based on you. It never was. I'm not sure if this could happen. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with his mercy and grace. What What I need in that instance is not a fresh view of myself. I need a fresh view of God. That's what I need. But the danger of of both of these is I find myself in a place out of relationship with God, simply relying on myself, deceived. Because here's the thing, it's not that I can't find a place of repentance, I don't think I need to repent. The Pharisee stood there and said, I thank God I'm not like him. He didn't think he needed to repent. In fact, it was only when the younger son came to his senses... He lived his whole life not thinking, I need to say sorry. I need to do it. I need to repent. It was only when he came to his senses and the blessings ran out, he realized something's happening. The elder son, we don't know. We don't know what happened. But I'm here to tell you, if I don't see the gospel as a relationship, I'm going to see it through a lens that's going to affect my view of everything else. I need to see God for who he is. I need to see his goodness. And you know what? I can leave this place and know that it doesn't matter what I've done, who I am, positive or negative. God loves me. He cares for me. His grace and mercy go with me. And when I wake up in the morning, his goodness is still going to be there. His mercy is still going to be there. That I'm going to live my life for him. Yeah, there's things that go along with that. And we'll talk about that next week. What that means in my life and the daily practices. But you know what? I leave this place not in any confidence in myself. But I leave in the confidence of God and who he is. He's a good God. He is a good father. He is someone who sees me and cares for me. And I want to demonstrate that to others. I want us to pray right now. Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what you have done in our life. Lord, that the gospel is about a restoration of relationship, God. That it doesn't just save us from something, but it puts us back in line with you. And God, when we're in line with you, your grace, your mercy, Lord, I begin to see who you are. Lord, and I realize how little this depends upon me, God. Lord, that I can't be good enough, but Lord, I know I can't do enough wrong that you'll ever quit loving me, that your love extends beyond. And Lord, I want to see you for who you are, God. Lord, I want to demonstrate who you are to others, God. That this is not about rules and regulations. This is not about being set free from all these other things that I do or don't have to do. This is about being put in relationship with you. Lord, help me demonstrate that relationship to to others, God. That they see that. They want that. They desire that. Because they see your goodness demonstrated in my life. 
Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that starts to struggle with these things, Lord, that you would allow them to see a way of repentance back to you because that's where your goodness leads. It's where it leads. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Paul says, I die daily. You see, when I get to the place, I don't really think I need to repent. Paul knew God's goodness. And the more he knew of God's goodness the more he knew he needed to find a place of repentance. It's not that the more I know about God and walk with God, the less I have to repent. The more I see of God, the more I realize how much I do need to repent. Because I see so much more wrong in me. And I know the only way to fix it is through him. Brother Gene's preached a message on it where Paul sees himself, the progression of himself, and at the end he sees himself as the chief of all sinners is where God's goodness led him to view himself. I am absolutely nothing without the goodness of God. That's it. He's a great God. He's a mighty God. He loves you. He cares for you. When you go to work tomorrow, you're going in the goodness of God. You're going to demonstrate his goodness, the relationship that we have, and anyone can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here in service tonight. Thank you again, Olivia. Great uh, message that you gave us. Thank you for being here and worshiping. You're dismissed tonight. Remember our announcements. Remember Sunday. We're going to have a great time in the Lord. Invite someone to church. Amen. You're dismissed this evening.